You are so fine, Chris Powell. We are lucky. Well, we are part of a tradition that believes in the educated minister and want deep intellectual thoughts from the minister. And more and more, I think, less is more. And on some level, my job is just to state the obvious because we miss it. And to say it, hopefully, if it needs to be said, only if it needs to be said, and if it needs to be said with compassion. And I'm learning it needs to be said less and less, just so you know. I am teachable. That's the good part of an educated ministry. I'm teachable. So this is a sermon that on some level is incredibly obvious, a sermon topic, that the holidays are complicated. Filled with just the wide range of emotions. And it's not just, we read, the readings were mostly about grief and the struggles of those emotions, but really it's the whole range of emotions. Even the highs are problematic because we want them and to cling to them, or we overindulge because of them, or we overindulge because we want to ignore the hard ones, or So the holidays are complicated. Our schedules are thrown awry. We're mixed in with people we love and don't love and should love and ay, 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 ay. And one of the reasons for the obvious, for stating the obvious, is here's what I've discovered when people state the obvious to me. It immediately makes me feel not weird. Oh, right, I feel that way. Oh, you recognize. So there's an immediate sense of I'm part of a lo- something larger and I'm not the only one feeling whatever it is or experiencing whatever's going on. That's one part. The other is it also makes you feel not alone, part of something bigger, part of the human race who experiences things on some similar plane, despite cultural overlays, despite gender and all of the other things that affect how we experience things. And then the last is our most deep Unitarian belief. I'm not sure the Universalists take this quite with such vigor, and that is in truth. You know, truth is embedded in our fourth principle that we expect to participate in a free and responsible search for truth. And then it's embedded in Hope's mission and all of our documents that part of what we're doing here is seeking truth. But the truth, the way we often experience it here is that it's all about facts and in our heads and in about logic. And there are so many other kinds of truths, the ones that reside in your body, the ones that are connected with your heart and mind. It may be true for some that this is too cold in this room. 
It may be true for others that it's too hot. Those are valid truths, and they inform the decisions and actions we take. So if you're only living up here and only looking for facts and figures and reason and logic, then oh my, you're missing a whole world of information that you use to do things, to speak, to act, to avoid acting, to avoid speaking. We have these physical reactions, we have feelings, and it gets us in trouble when we ignore, when we aren't aware. I'll make a a broad brush generalization that I think our American culture, our United States culture, enlightened culture, um, born out of the Enlightenment, asks us to set aside feelings and um, physical experiences. That's what the transcendentalists were trying to reclaim a little bit of. But in general, and I think it, it matters with gender too, I think some gender expectations have to do with not feeling your feelings, not expressing them, not... And the more and more you do that, the more you're unaware of the really incredible spectrum of feelings and sensations in your body. We are a tradition that's uncomfortable, I would say, with a form of worship that is fully embodied. We stand, we sing, those are all embodied things, but we are not swayers, we are not... (laughs) 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 And I have to say I'm uncomfortable with that too. Um because it's an expectation that your body is going to react and you will react a very specific way. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if that's me. But I think we miss information. Um, My original career in life started out as a film editor back in the 80s when every corporation had to have their own film department. It was a great thing for me to kind of step in and get to... um, make films to edit. And one day, so part of being a film editor is you watch raw footage. So you watch what a director or a cameraman does, and it's kind of like a stream of consciousness. Even though they're, they're headed in a sp- specific direction, I was working not on narrative films, but on documentaries and kind of corporate films. And there is some structure to shooting in them, but you're often out in the world trying to catch something. So I got to know, it's interesting, I got to know a cameraman well by how he shot film and what caught his attention and what he was thinking. And it was a little bit like getting to be inside of his head. One day he and a crew went to the Tulsa State Fair and they had a brand new camera that was very quiet. And they didn't realize that it was turned on. So in those days, a whole reel of film was 22 minutes. And we considered that expensive and wild. And and so he rolled out a whole 22 minutes of film. 
And some of it was things that he was shooting, and some of it was simply walking, and the footage was like this, or, or they'd stop and set the camera down while they rested and thought. But it was, I watched it several times. It was real. I could, I could imagine what he was thinking. Oh, this caught his eye. That was shining. Look, there's someone. He happened to be a young male. He caught a lot of young, beautiful women. <laughs> I noticed that. What was shiny? What colors caught his attention? So we had a conversation about what, what he was thinking, what he was experiencing. And he came away thinking, I, I hadn't realized some of the decisions I make unconsciously. And I experienced being on the other side of that when I made a documentary about an elderly woman artist and it was my master's thesis. And I would show some of my raw footage, rough footage, to a committee. And um, I was showing a scene and heard myself yell, cut! That didn't strike me as weird. Until one of my professors said, let's back up to that minute. Did you notice you said cut and why? It's like, well, you know, the scene was over. She had said what she, I was interviewing an artist, and she had said what I thought she was going to say. And I learned then, and I've learned ever since then, that when people really have something to say, they won't say it until it's the end of the conversation. Or, even more so, they'll walk out and then realize, oh, I didn't really say what I wanted to say, and they'll come back and say what they really wanted to tell you, that it's after. So they pointed out, she had started talking about her own death, and I didn't give her a split second. I said, cut! (laughs) And it made me notice my own discomfort with death, her talking about it, and therefore, if I scratch a little bit beneath the surface and not very far about my own. So what we're going to do is talk about these holidays as wonderful and hard, but as data for ourselves. We, Unitarian Universalists, who believe in information and truth, These holidays and how you respond to them is data. And all the ways that you aren't paying attention is data you're missing. And the data isn't just what we're thinking, that narrative that goes on and on and on and on and on, never stops. But how it feels in your body which is not something we talk about a lot. So what I've done, you will notice, is I'm thinking this is data like, for those of you from my era, this is like a great uh, thesaurus or encyclopedia, a reference book. So you, your body, yourself, we are the reference book that we're going to check out. That's why you have a library card. 
And on the back, what I'm giving you is, um, there's a whole slew of Buddhist teachers. I turn to Buddhism because I, I feel like it connects well with our Unitarian Universalist tradition and this search for truth. Because both traditions say, do not look away from what is hard. Because if when we look away and ignore, it becomes harder. So what I've given you is an acronym. There's a whole slew of Buddhist teachers from the 70s and 80s who are um, all over the world, but in cahoots with each other and teach jointly or show up in workshops together. And they've, they've all, um, about 10 of them, more, because now they have students. And now they have ministers who share this stuff too. <laughs> um, have developed this acronym RAIN. And I've been trying to work with it um, pretty deeply for the last two months. Not just for the holidays, but just in general. Because on one level, I feel like I'm a fairly self-aware person. And then on the other level, when I start paying attention, I oh, oh, I didn't realize. We'll get to it. So the first step, RAIN. This is a classic way of teaching mindfulness. And it is a classic way of teaching mindfulness um, when things are difficult. But as I mentioned, it's also useful when things are joyful and stimulating to notice all those things. So the first is to recognize what is happening. It sounds so obvious, but I don't know about you, I am always missing what is happening. And the clues that I have that I'm missing what is happening, that I'm not self-aware, are as simple as I don't know where my cell phone or my keys are. Or I can't remember what happened yesterday because I wasn't fully there. I was somewhere else. I was in my head. I was making lists. I was planning. I was reworking what should have happened in the past, all those things. I wasn't recognizing what is happening in the moment. I've given you this description before from my teacher, Sister Ellie, who gets it from her teacher, Rob Nairn, who describes being aware of what is happening while it's happening, no matter what, is not unlike the cat that's sitting in front of a mouse hole. And the cat has trained its attention fully on that mouse hole because it knows there's something fabulous there. And at the same time, just from a slight ear twitch or a little tail, the cat is aware of everything going on in the room. If you walked in, the cat would know immediately. So that's what being aware. And what happens when you recognize what is happening, you immediately step out of denial. I want to have a drink. I think I'm starving. What you just said was insulting. I didn't notice it. But now that I step out of denial and recognize what is being said or done or how I feel, then I am fully present in my reality, at least, my own reality. And it's where 
we get stuck when we don't recognize what is going on with ourselves. I'll avoid it. So that means I continue to treat that same situation the same, even though there's a lot of different options. I'll take the same option every time because I don't want to recognize what's going on. And then the next one. This one's hard for me. Allow life to be as it is. I am always fixing life. It could be better. I know what to do. I don't want to be here. The next thing is more interesting to me. I'm, I'm seldom here. I'm often in the next, you know, we're go- some of you are going to go out to breakfast. You're already thinking about that breakfast or lunch or rather than being right here. And it means, okay, so back to our commitment to truth. Allowing life to be as it is is hard because it means accepting whatever feeling and thought you're having at the moment. Oh my God, she looks ugly. It means accepting that thought, that judgment that you immediately made. This scares the hell out of me. It means accepting that. Not trying to fix it, not trying to change it. And what makes that complicated for me, and I suspect for many of you, is it scares me, and I'm afraid I'm going to be stuck in this feeling that's hard, if it's hard, forever. The grief, back to the grief. I'm going to be stuck in the grief. I'm going to be stuck in the loss. We get stuck there when we aren't fully acknowledging it and paying attention to it when we keep doing this, pushing it aside. Because then it'll be there and bigger. You know how you shovel snow and then you finally reach a point where you can't, the pile's too big. And it allows you to begin, begin to see the judgments and stories that you tell yourself that may not have anything to do with truth and everything to do with your own habits, beliefs. So the last, the I, is to investigate, and here's what I appreciate, the investigate with kindness. Because my experience of all of us, myself included, is we're brutal with ourselves. We're brutal with all those negative, scary, oh, I don't want anyone to know what I'm really thinking. And we're brutal with, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be thinking this, I shouldn't be feeling this. I'm here in a room with people I love, I shouldn't feel this lonely. I'm here with people I gave birth to, I shouldn't feel this mad at them. So it means asking yourself, it means uh, investigating with kindness is scratching underneath where one of the teachers who's, who teaches this uh, described a classic holiday meal. I don't think she said it was Thanksgiving. I think she said it was Christmas. But since we've all been at Thanksgiving, her whole family had come home. She was thrilled, except 
Her father got mad at the meal because he wanted something different. Her son said he would help, but then ducked out early. Um, What were some other things? Something burned, and by the end of the meal, she was like, I need to get out of here, and she went for a walk (laughs) and allowed herself to use rain. So she said, okay, I'm really angry. I'm really disappointed in my son. God, my father is so demanding. And then she scratched underneath it a little bit. You know what? I'm upset with my son because it reflects on me. I feel like I've been a bad mother. And I haven't raised someone who is able to follow through what what he says he will do and will help. So she's turned that back on herself. And my father's judgment and anger at the meal. Oh, I hate that. And then she realized, oh, because it reminds me of times that I've felt that way. So it helps us scratch beneath our immediate reactions. Because once we do that, And once we look at the narrative and what we tell ourselves and why we react automatically, we begin to open the door wide to other possible reactions. Oh, I can hear how judgmental you are, but I don't have to make a snarky remark back. What would that interaction be like? And it immediately, just the smallest nudge of a different reaction changes what's possible. And the end, so there are three things you have to do. You have to recognize, investigate, allow. But the end part, she uses the word um, non-identification, and that's one of those technical Buddhist terms. But in a sense, it means don't get hooked into who you think you are. That who you are is much more vast, much more possible than the narrow, little, small self we give ourselves. So I changed it to non-attachment, not getting hooked into reacting for those feelings, not even noticing that you had those feelings, and me, it reacted before you even could name it. Um, And I didn't, I want to go back to the I, because this natural awareness, I have been trying to pay more attention to where my feelings do reside in my body. I don't pay much attention. But I am aware now, thank you, that every Sunday morning I kind of wake up with a fluttering because I know I'm going to have to preach. And I realize it's nerves and it changes. And I've started just paying attention to how it changes and how it dissipates and then builds back up and dissipates. And some of it is fear. I'm not going to say just the right perfect thing. Whatever that is, there is no such thing. It's really wanting to be a conduit for wisdom. You never know what someone needs to hear. What I imagine is that I have to say just the right thing and then realize people come up afterwards and said that spoke to me. Oh, that did? So the narrative I tell myself is about perfection and uh, standing up here in front of you. 
and I notice how it moves and, and changes, which is what the investigation part does. We often feel like fear and grief are a brick wall that's always the same. And the more you pay attention to it, the more you realize, no, it moves around. First it was a headache, and then it kind of wandered over here into my shoulder. It changes. And it's useful information for when we are in really tight spaces. When we are, for example, in the hospital, scared to death, having treatments, and you feel pain and you notice, wait, the pain feels like a brick wall that's immobile, but in reality, it does change. And we get curious. We're Unitarians. The truth that we seek is dependent on us always being curious, always being humble that we don't have all the answers, even about our own body, even about our own responses. And once you do that, once you start getting curious and noticing all your urges and all your joys, then you actually have stepped away and you're less attached to it. That's so interesting I respond that way. Huh, that's weird. You're immediately removed ever so slightly, which allows you to use all those different reactions. So that's my recommendation, giving you tools for dealing with all of the heightened feelings that the holidays bring to us. I don't mean to rain on your parade. (laughs) Instead, I mean to rain on all the possibilities so that they bloom and that we learn more and understand that the holidays are complicated and there's a lot to learn from it. And we have a lot to learn from each other. May it be so.